But I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the New Testament. Uh, we're going to be reading a few verses from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and then we're going to scoot back uh, in time, but also in Scripture, to Psalm 131. So John chapter 6, of course, uh, it's John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, actually, John 5, I guess, or earlier in John 6, you'll find that, and then uh, that's the story where Jesus walks on the water and, and all of these things. But we read in, in John 6, verse 25. Is it going to be on the screen there? Yeah, because I have the ESV in front of me here. So it says there, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of the, all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. And now we scoot over to Psalm 131. It's just a short psalm. It's one of the psalms of ascents. And it says there, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I have a couple of questions to ask you this morning. Uh, I think they're, they're relevant on any Sunday morning. They're not just relevant on Sunday mornings, they're relevant, I suppose, every day of the week, but kind of as we're on the threshold of a brand new year, maybe they're especially relevant, I don't know, you can think about it yourself. But what does a, a typical Sunday morning look like in your household? Now, I know that can be a loaded question for some of you. Um, we've all had Sundays where we've come to church, and... It took everything in us just to sort of paste a smile on our face. We really didn't feel like smiling, and we stepped out of the vehicle, and we came into church, but we were feeling miserable. We've had a, a difficult week. Sometimes we, we come to church, and we're so exhausted. 
or we're so angry about things. Maybe we're even angry with God about certain things. Or maybe some of us, we, we come to church and we're not just lonely or exhausted or angry. We come to church and we, we're, we're just feeling terrible about ourselves. These are all these sorts of things that are, that are going through our heads. Uh, maybe sometimes on, on Sunday mornings, if you have a young family, it's, it's especially disastrous. Uh, and it feels like you're just fighting with your kids the entire time. You, you get them up in the morning, you wrangle them into the bath if they need to get into the bath, you fight with them over what they're going to eat for breakfast, you, you get them into the car, you shoehorn them in, and, and now that you're here this morning, you're like, well, at least they're wearing clothes. That's a win, right? Well, maybe it's also happened on a Sunday morning as you've been driving in, if you've been coming in with the spouse, that on your way in, you got into an argument. And, and you said something that was very hurtful to your spouse. And now as you're reflecting on it, you're thinking about it, and you think, that was totally uncalled for. I responded in such a way that it, it was not necessary, that wasn't appropriate. And you've been sitting here for a while. We had our prayer of confession, and we've been sitting here. And, and you're actually kind of feeling pretty terrible. You see, in reality, we, we all come to worship on Sundays, and we worship the Lord throughout the week, but on Sundays, especially, I, I, I want to focus on, we, we come here as broken and weary people, don't we? I, I really don't even need to tell you that this morning. We all know it. We all experience it. We know it intuitively. But it's because of that dynamic that I've really come to appreciate this, this collection in the Psalter, in the 150 Psalms, called the Psalms of Ascents. Psalms 120 through 134, and these were these psalms that the Israelites would sing as they pilgrimaged from their homes, wherever that might have been in the, in the land of Israel, and as they journeyed to Jerusalem, usually three times a year if they could make it happen, they would go for these big annual festivals in Jerusalem and in the temple. So they'd go to Jerusalem for the Passover, when Israel would remember how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They would go at Pentecost when they'd celebrate the ingathering of the harvest, but also the giving of the law. And then they would also go for the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles when they would just remember the Lord's faithfulness to them as they lived in tents for 40 years in the wilderness before they came into the Promised Land. So every year they would journey there, uh, grandmas and grandpas and opas and omas and, and moms and dads and kids and uncles and aunts and, and just this throng of people from all over the promised land, they'd make their way to Jerusalem and they would sing. And they would sing in such a way to prepare their hearts as they would come for worship. They, they would sing, at, and, and as they would sing these songs, I think that individual Israelites would think about their own unique need for God's grace to them in their own unique circumstances. And, and that's why I like to think of the Psalms of Ascents as we could almost call them songs for Sunday. I know we're not pilgrimaging to Jerusalem, I understand that. But, but they're great. I mean, whether you've had a Psalm 122 kind of week, it, it starts off like this, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I mean, how many of us have had that before? You're, you're just looking forward to Sunday. There it is. You're so excited to just be in the presence of God, but also just to be surrounded by your brothers and sisters in Christ because this is home. So maybe you've had a week like that and you've come to church, but maybe you've had a Psalm, a Psalm 123 kind of week and it hasn't been so great. And so you sing to yourself, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Why? For we have endured no end of contempt. 
It's been a difficult week. So in other words, the, the Psalms of Ascents or these songs for Sunday, they, they actually just give voice to our struggles and they give voice to our unique need for grace. But in doing that, each of these psalms, they, they confront us implicitly with, with crucial questions about the posture of our hearts toward God. And Psalm 131 is no exception to this. Uh, through the psalmist's inspired words, the, the Holy Spirit is asking each one of us, what kind of grace do you think that you need today? Maybe there's a, a connected follow-up. Is what God gives you in Jesus Christ enough? Now we, we can sharpen these questions even more if we want to. You know, why do you come to church every week? Why do you serve the Lord every day of your life? What is it that you think God or Christianity is going to give you? What need is going to be satisfied after you've had a difficult week or after you've had a frustrating morning? Now, I think if you're, you're honest with yourself, uh, because I feel these things myself too, that, that you'd admit that the kind of grace that you think you need or, or the kinds of things that you want from God, often they're like food and clothing and, and jobs and health and repaired relationships with people around us, if, if you're honest with yourself, you'll, you'll recognize that these aren't ultimately what you need. Now, these are good things. We pray for these things. We, we pray to a God who loves to give us good gifts. Obviously, that's not the problem so much. But, but they will never ultimately satisfy your soul. But why is the ordering of our desires and our wants often so backwards? We, we flip it on its head. You know, why are we prone to, to misjudge our deepest and, and our most desperate need for God's grace? You know, why do we desire these things from God instead of a restored relationship with God? Peace with God. Why, why do we desire these things instead of forgiveness of our sins? Well, that's a big question, and I'm convinced that the answer is related to the fact that too often we overestimate our own righteousness as human beings because of the things that we do, and actually we underestimate the infinite holiness of God. And we sort of level these things off a little bit as we look at ourselves in relation to God. And that's why we go to God for things instead of going to God for God. Now, this can manifest in all sorts of terrible ways. Um, we read from John chapter 6. When I first preached this sermon, it, it was in connection with a communion Sunday, and, and we read this at the table after we had celebrated Lord's Supper, after we had eaten the bread and after we had drank the wine. And Jesus says to his disciples, you're just following me. This is after he'd fed the 5,000. You're just following me because you have full stomachs right now. You're coming to me for food. Now, that's, that's one terrible thing. We, that's called the prosperity gospel. We, we hear about preachers, especially in the United States, who, who do this, where they say, well, if you check these boxes and you serve God in this way, well, he's going to reward you. He's going to give you health 
and he's going to give you wealth, and he's going to give you a dazzling white smile and perfect hair. But there's another unsettling way in, in which this can manifest, and and if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. The Lord Jesus Christ, he, he tells a parable there. These are these stories that he would tell. And often these stories, they, they appear very simple, and yet they have these profound spiritual meanings about the kingdom of heaven and why he came and what it means to be in relationship with him, all of these things. And, and in this parable, he, he compares two worshipers who come to the temple one day and one is a Pharisee, so he would be one of these religious elites. He's like your, your pastor kind of thing, but not, hopefully. Uh, and then on the other hand, we've got uh, a tax collector. He's sort of the scum of society because he's a traitor to the Jewish people. He probably embezzles money. He's supposed to be a terrible kind of person. So Jesus tells this parable about both of them come to church. Both of them come to the temple to worship one Sunday or one Sabbath day. And he says there, I have the ESV in front of me. But the Pharisee, Jesus says, stands by himself. Now, isn't that interesting? In the throng of believers, he's like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to stand over here. I'm going to do my thing over here. I'm going to worship the Lord over here. And he prays this prayer. I thank you, God. Why? That I'm not like other people. What kind of people? Well, cheaters and sinners and adulterers. And guess what? I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. That's what, that's what he says. And then he says, he, he lists off what he does. He's like, well, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my income. And then the camera moves over and we look at the tax collector. And he also stands at a distance. That's interesting. But he stands at a distance for a very different reason. And he dared not to lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, it says. And he said, oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Now, in his self-righteousness, this Pharisee didn't think he needed God's grace. He, he was doing okay on his own. He was fasting twice a week. He was giving a tenth of all that he had. He came to church all the time. He wore a suit and tie. He did what he needed to do. He was a rock star, religiously speaking. So he probably thought that when he would come for worship, that God would be so pleased that he had showed up at the temple, and when he prayed to him, God would be like, oh, this man is wonderful. And he gives him a pat on the back, and he gives him all the blessings that he needs. It's this great exchange that you have with God. Again, this is the prosperity gospel. And then we have this contrast, this, this prayer of this tax collector. It reveals genuine humility. He, he recognizes his total unworthiness to be in the presence of a holy God. That's what this, fair, or this tax collector feels like when he comes into the presence of God. He doesn't belong. God is perfect. God is holy, and he's a sinner. Now, we haven't even looked at Psalm 131, so let's look at it. Look at first, the first line there. Psalm 131, verse 1. Now, as you read this, isn't this ancient pilgrim song basically the prayer of the tax collector? You know, at the forefront of their minds, as these pilgrims, as these worshipers are journeying, I don't know from where, Nazareth, say, and they're making the 100-kilometer journey down to Jerusalem, this is what they're thinking about. They're thinking about how unworthy they are to enter into the presence of God. 
in the temple. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. NIV, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. So every Sunday, as you prepare for worship, or for that matter, every day of the week, when, when you come into the presence of God, when, when, you, when you have devotions or when you're praying to Him, how, how do you view yourself in relation to this God? Do you honestly expect God to, to figuratively give you this pat on the back because you're doing such a wonderful job? Your, your track record is awesome. And then He's going to bless you. Or do you think of yourself kind of like these pilgrims or kind of like this tax collector? I can hardly believe that I can come into the presence of this holy God, that, that I can gather for worship among the people of God because I struggled this past week and I sinned this past week. And, and by rights, I know that I do not deserve to be called a child of God. I have no right to be here. I don't deserve any righteousness that Christ gives to me. And yet I've received it by grace. And so you come into worship and, and you think to yourself, thank you, God, for saving a wretched sinner like me. I need your grace every hour. I need you, Lord. I need you every moment. I need your spirit to, to revive my exhausted soul. Now, here's the thing. When, when we come into worship with that sort of frame of mind, and that's the posture of our hearts, like Psalm 131, verse 1, when we recognize our, our utter dependence on God's grace and mercy, it also transforms the way we start to view other people around us it, in society in general, your neighbors, but I think particularly the, the people that you're sitting next to today. Now, the, the NIV translates this opening line, right? My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. Well, well haughty eyes, it refers to someone who is filled with self-righteous pride, like this Pharisee. Self-righteous people, they, they tend to look down their noses at everyone else. I'm not a sinner. I'm not a cheater. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like that tax collector. And they're rather ungracious people. They think they're better than everyone else spiritually. But the believer who, who sings Psalm 131 from the heart, who beats their chest in sorrow over their sin, will never look down on others. John Bradford, the 17th century preacher, he would go past the gallows in England, and he would see these men ready to die. The noose was around their neck, and the hangman was ready to pull the lever, and he would say, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Because he knew it could have, could have easily been him that day. Now, recognizing God's saving grace in our lives, it, it helps us to love God for who He is and to love the, the broken people that are around us with grace. But it also impacts our daily lives throughout the week. St. Augustine was a, a church father in the fourth century, and he wrote a, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, one of his most famous works is called Confessions. And in Confessions, there's this quotable quote. You've probably seen it on Instagram. If you come to my house, you'll see it on our wall. And Augustine says, You, O Lord, have made us for Yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in You. Now, there was another lady many, many years later who lived during the Second World War. Her name was Corrie Timboom. 
Uh, you've probably heard about her. Uh, she and her family hid Jews during the Second World War, and they were arrested, and they were thrown into working camps. Her father died, her sister died, and she survived, and she told her story, and she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. And at one point in that book, she says, you can never know that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And so when our hearts are resting in Christ, our circumstances... They do not dictate our joy. They do not dictate our restfulness, spiritually speaking. And so we don't easily become anxious uh, because we trust that our Father in heaven, in his mysterious ways, in his sovereign purposes, he's got everything under control. And we can't always understand it, but we do trust from the scriptures, from Romans 8, that he is working all things together for the salvation of all those who love him. Now, that's the point of the next line in Psalm 131. It says, I do not occupy myself, I do not concern myself with great matters of things too wonderful for me. And so I'm content, is what the psalmist is saying. I'm content to just dwell in his embrace. And I'm not going to ask for God to give me wealth and, and prestige and greatness. I just need a Savior. Now, with, with all of that in mind, with that beautiful musical confession of faith uh, as these believing pilgrims journeyed from their homes to worship, think about this. Let's look at the next line. Because this confession, it's made even more tender by the imagery of verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted myself. Next line. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. In the ancient Middle East, the weaning of a child was a big deal. Now, my wife and I are expecting, it's been about six years since we had another child in the home. I can't remember when we weaned our last children. Sorry. Uh, but it probably wasn't five years. I'm pretty sure it wasn't five years because our daughter is five and she hasn't been nursing for a long, long time. But in the Middle East, children nursed for sometimes up to five or six years. And when they were finished with that stage of nursing, they were weaned. Of course, there was a process leading up to it, but it was a huge deal. And so we read about it in, in Genesis chapter 22 or 21 verse 8. Abraham, the patriarch Abraham and his wife Sarah threw this massive party because Isaac was weaned. This is the story where Ishmael gets jealous and then they're kicked out and, and there's all sorts of tension. But it was a big deal because weaning indicated that this human being, whether he was five or six or three, I don't know, but it indicated that he had moved from this really vulnerable stage in the Middle East, you know, when they can't just drink the water and, and eat it, whatever they want. He's, he's moved from that stage to a stage where he can Weaning was a big deal. I mean, we're, we're not familiar with this, but child mortality rates, they were so different than they are here. Children died a lot. They didn't survive infancy. Weaning is a huge deal. But this was a difficult process. Now, if any of you have weaned your own children and they were a year or two years old, you know it was a difficult process. But you probably had microwaves and stoves and bottles and fridges. Now get rid of all of that and add four or five years to your child and try to wean that child. You think that was easy? I don't think that was easy. Think about this child who has gone to his mother all his life for sustenance and food and all of these things and suddenly, sorry, 
stores closed. It would have been frustrating. This, this child would have become angry. This child would have been fussy and agitated. It would have turned to crying, wouldn't it? C.H. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, uh, he wrote about this passage, uh, and, he, and he said that weaning was one of the first real troubles we met after we came into this world. And it was at the time a very terrible one to our little hearts. Now, here's what's important to picture as we look at Psalm 131, verse 2. This isn't a child who is in the weaning process. This is a child who's completed the weaning process. I am a weaned child. The child no longer looks to his or her mother for, for what the mother will give to him. Instead, the child is perfectly content to just snuggle, snuggle into the safety of his mother's arms, and to just hear her breathing. How many of you remember that when you were a little child? Remember when you'd be crying and you'd be calmed down, and you'd be sitting with your mom in her chest, and you could hear her breathing. You could hear her heart. That's Psalm 131, verse 2. It doesn't want anything. It just wants his mom. It just wants to hear her. It just wants to be near her. It just wants to enjoy her maternal love and care. Here's the point. Psalm 131 says that this is a picture of a mature believer who understands the gospel. This is the picture of someone who understands what God has given to them in Jesus Christ. You see, we shouldn't be coming to church every Sunday. We, we should not be worshiping the Lord throughout our lives so that we can get stuff from Him in exchange He's not sort of some genie that we rub the lamp or a lever we pull and we get a job. That's not our God. We understand that God has already given himself to us. Isn't that what we celebrate at Christmas time? Emmanuel, God with us. And so our heart's desire as we journey through this life, not to Jerusalem for worship, but as we journey to the new Jerusalem, is just to enjoy the safety and intimacy and, and, and love of our Father's embrace. Now, it's not always easy to remember this. I, I can speak from experience here. Sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, we, we behave more like a child who's still in that weaning process instead of a child who's completed that weaning process. And so as we encounter difficulties in life, we're, we're tempted to become angry and we're tempted to become frustrated with God because he isn't immediately fulfilling those desires that we want. So how can we mature beyond that stage in life? Well, the answer is very simple. And yet, simplicity doesn't mean it's not profound. Here's the answer. We move forward in that stage by grace, of course. But by meditating and by savoring God for who he is. He's our Father in heaven. It's by regularly listening to and, 
and feeding off of His Word week in and week out every day as we, we do devotions, understanding our need for Him and what the gospel tells us He's given us. It's by praying to Him for strength. It's by depending on the power of the Holy Spirit to grow us and to shape us, to help us to understand and to trust Him, even when we don't always know what's going on. And here's the best part. As we do this, God promises that He will help us, and He will make this reality. He does give us His Spirit, and and through the working of His Spirit, our souls are refreshed, but more importantly, our souls are hushed, and our souls are quieted as we sit in the embrace of our Heavenly Father. Now, through the gospel, the Spirit reminds us and assures us of God's tender love, of His intimate care. F.B. Meyer, another commentator, he, he writes a commentary on the book of Psalms, and he says, at first, we, we passionately resist the outcry and the strife that God sends us. And maybe we would call this, in a New Testament context, self-denial. Maybe we would call this taking up our crosses and following Jesus even when it hurts. But then Myers continues, but the comforter comes, and he hushes us on the very lap of God. Now, I'm going to close here, and I'm going to close with a long quote from a book by John Piper. It's called, God is the Gospel. If you've never read it, it's, it's an easy read and it's profound. Piper asks the question, would you be happy in heaven if God was not there? He says, all the saving events of the Scriptures and the saving blessings of the Gospels are means of getting all the obstacles out of the way so that we might know and enjoy God most fully. And so there's a list, propitiation and redemption and forgiveness and imputation and sanctification and liberation and healing in heaven. None of these is good news except for one reason. They bring us to God for our everlasting enjoyment of Him. If we believe that these things have happened to us, but do not embrace them for the sake of getting to know God, Piper says, then they have not happened to us. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who want to be happy and think they would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there... They will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people into heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. And so, let's come back to this question. What kind of grace do you think you need? Is what God gives you in Jesus Christ sufficient. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for just an amazing opportunity to be here in worship, uh, to enjoy the freedom that you give us. We know there are so many of your children throughout the world who do not have this freedom. We thank you for the opportunity again to be reminded that you give yourself to us in Jesus Christ. 
that you take the initiative, that you took the initiative when you sent your one and only son into this world, that you took the initiative when he, he volunteered himself and he went to the cross and he bore our sin on his shoulders. And in doing so, he, he brought peace. That you took the initiative in adopting us to be your children, sons and daughters of God Most High. Father, may that be our comfort. May that be our hope. May that be our joy today, tomorrow, and next year, every day. May you be enough. May you fill our hearts with all that we need to live and move and have our being. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.